Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Everybody's had times when you got up and you didn't feel much like coming to church. And Brother Sonny's often commented, you know, like when you're the pastor of the church, <laughs> you don't really get to uh, indulge that inclination. You pretty much have to show up and preach whether you feel like it or not. But that doesn't mean that we're not prone to having that same feeling at times. And sometimes you just got to push on through. Sometimes serving the Lord is not about doing what feels good or what's the way of comfort and ease. It's not the path of least resistance. It's going to require something of you. The Lord said something along the lines of strive to enter at the narrow gate, right? The straight gate. There's going to be some effort that's required from time to time, and it's good for us to remind ourselves that that is not unusual, right? Don't feel like, oh, I really had to strive today. Well, every one of us has had that experience, and it's normal. But uh, we should be here to encourage one another to kind of press on through, and hopefully when you do press through, you find that there's a blessing in that. My subject today is really centered around the phrase, it is written. And as I thought about it more, It's really, I guess I would title this sermon, Remember It Is Written. I doubt that any of us would deny the fact that the truths of God are written in His Word. And you say, it is written, and you quote a Bible verse, people say, yeah, I agree with that. But we don't remember that as often as we should, and in instances where it's needful for us to remember those things. Benjamin Franklin said, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You've probably all heard that quote that comes out of our nation's history, death and taxes. There's nothing certain but death and taxes. Now, I believe that Benjamin Franklin was being somewhat hyperbolic in that. I think there are many other things that we could say are certain. The salvation of God's people is certain, is it not? There's other things that are certain. He was being somewhat hyperbolic, and I think this point goes along the lines of you can't be sure about where this nation is headed long term. It may not be as certain as it seems, and it certainly seems as though anybody that's escaping the matter of corporeal death in this world, everybody dies, and uh, taxes seem just as inevitable. So he's making a point there, but if I were to try to augment his list of things that are certain, it would go beyond death and taxes. You could add a lot of things to that list. I added the salvation of God's people to it. We know that's the case. By the way, death is not absolutely certain for everyone, is it? And it also depends on what you mean by death. But we know that there's going to be a time when Christ returns and some people are not going to die. They're going to be translated. So death is not even really certain if you believe the testimony of the Word of God. But if I were to add something to this list today of things that you can be certain about, I'm going to add temptation. Temptation is something that is certain for God's people. The Lord Jesus Christ said, in this world ye shall have tribulation. And those tribulations come in a lot of different forms. Most of them fall into the category of being tempted to do something that you ought not do, right? Tempted to shirk some responsibility or tempted to engage in some sinful practice. 
Temptations are everywhere and they surround God's people. Hey, if we live in a rampantly wicked world, it would be crazy to try to say that, well, we're not going to encounter any temptation in the midst of all of that. So, I would say temptation is inevitable and it comes in a lot of forms. It surrounds us on all sides. It's how are you going to use your time? How are you tempted to use your time? If you had to take your time and plot it on a pie chart, and we had two categories, one was serving self and one was serving the kingdom of God, what would that pie look like? How much of your time is spent serving yourself and how much of it is spent serving the kingdom of God? I'm not making any assessment of anyone. Everybody's got their own pie to manage in this deal. But I know if I think about that over the course of my life, I'm a little bit ashamed of the slice of pie that might be attributed to the kingdom of God versus just serving myself. What about money? Well, they say time is money, so that's just another flavor of, of the deal. How are we tempted with respect to money? Does money lure us away from things, or do we hold on to it with a death grip as if it's going to be our ultimate deliverer? You know, you can hold on to money so tightly what was the song we sang this morning? Simply to thy cross I cling. Well, some people have that kind of grip on their money as if their money's going to save them from everything. And it's not. In the modern society with social media and whatnot, attention has become a source of temptation. Eyeballs. Is anybody looking at me? Am I getting the requisite amount of attention and recognition from people that I want to get? You might be surprised if you could sort of put a meter over your head, those of you who are on Facebook and stuff like that, how much of a dopamine hit you get by seeing some mention of you on Facebook. Now, I'm not launching out against Facebook, but I am trying to point out something about how we place value on attention. You put a comment on somebody's funny post or whatever, and somebody gives you a thumbs up, kind of makes you feel good about it, right? And we kind of crave that attention. and. Some people are more susceptible to it than others, and it influences their behavior in a great way. But there's a lot of ways that these different areas, time, money, attention, could begin to tempt you to act in certain ways that would not be profitable to you. So I'm going to add temptation to the list of things that are certain in the lives of God's people. But I want us to remember it is written. Because that's the example we want to look at today. Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus Christ, an example here of how He was tempted, that in some respects models how we will be tempted in our lives, and certainly models the sort of response that we should have to temptation. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now look, here's Jesus Christ, our Savior, our example. This is after the occasion of his baptism. You might say in our time this would be after the occasion of making a formal commitment to the kingdom of God in its visible manifestation here as the church. I've said to people that I've baptized on occasion that, you know, baptism is not the end of the matter. Maybe the end of the matter of I've got a conscience about God and I want to join His church and I'm convicted that this is something I need to do. 
And you'll find peace in following that inclination in the waters of baptism. But it may be the start of a whole host of other matters in your life. Because once you identify as a child of God, I am attached to the Lord's New Testament church, and I'm trying to live as a disciple, you have made yourself a target in this world. You're going to face some temptations that are unique to having put yourself in that situation. You sort of mark yourself out. You let your position be known, and that means you're prone to attack if you're surrounded by a hostile world. I remember back in the 80s, they used to have, it was really cool in the old TV shows, they had those pistols that had the laser on them, you know, and it would shoot a laser light, show you where the bullet was going to go. That was really cool back in those cop shows and stuff like that. You'd see these lasers going around, and, and it does help you put a bullet on target, especially if you're trying to shoot from the hip rather than looking through the sights. It could be very helpful. But what they found in tactics is that that has a tremendous downside to it. Because that laser light that's going through the atmosphere that creates a line there if there's any mist in the air, it points directly to where the shooter is. It reveals your position to a hostile enemy. And so you've seen the rise of red dot sights and things like that on pistols because you don't want to reveal your position. Well, I'm telling you, when you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, you in some respects have revealed your position to a world. You've come through the waters of baptism. You said, my trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe He is the Son of God. I believe that He was risen from the grave and my hope is in Him. You have revealed your position. And in a hostile world, they're going to say, there He is right there. Let's go after Him. And that's going to happen. What's interesting to me in this account, as it's set up here, that Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was afterward and hungered. I can tell you, I have never fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I haven't fasted four days and four nights. I can only imagine how incredibly hungry someone would be if they had fasted for that amount of time. How weakened would your state be if you were fasting for that period of time? It's almost unimaginable to me, but I think one of the lessons here that this teaches is that these temptations come into your life and they often come at times when you are at a very, very weak spot. It's not like you're standing on top of the mountain and you've just had these wonderful spiritual experiences and everything's going great and you've got no trouble and you're living as you ought and everything's great. And then in the midst of your spiritual strength, you have this little temptation come up and you kind of swat it to the side and you keep going on it because you're just such a spiritual giant. Now, these temptations come when you are down in the dumps, when you are at a spiritual low, when you're at your worst state. If you're going to attack the enemy, are you going to try to do it when they're at their maximum potential for fighting back? Or do you want to wait, wear them down, let them wear themselves down, let them stay in some entrenched position where they're wearing out their supply lines and whatnot, and they're worried about whether or not they're even going to have enough bullets and food to be able to mount a battle with you. Let them get to this weakened point and then attack them. This is a very common thing in military tactics. You gotta, don't force yourself to have to weaken the enemy if there's some way that you could let them just weaken themselves over time. And you'll find yourself in a weakened state on occasion. And as you are in a state of spiritual weakness, 
you can be certain that this is an ideal time for temptation to come into your life. It's in that weakened state. Verse 3 says, When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. That's a little bit of a slap in the face of the Lord here, right? He's kind of, yeah, you think you're somebody great. You call yourself the Son of God. Well, you could do this then, couldn't you? There's going to be an attack on your sense of who you think you are. There might be a little bit of an insult involved in that. If you really think you're somebody, you ought to do this thing. Got to be aware of that. That's a common tactic. Kind of gets you off guard when you're personally insulted in the matter. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written. Jesus Christ, in this response, is remembering something. He's remembering something that is written in the book of Deuteronomy. So he's going way back. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now he is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Flip back over there. By the way, Jesus Christ employing the sword here, right? He's under attack. He goes to the sword. He remembers it is written. And he has something to say about this. So the devil's attack on him is something along the lines of, well, you know, you're really hungry and you could solve this if you would just make some bread. And Jesus Christ is not willing to step into that matter and say, I'm going to accept the premise that you set up here. Instead, he's going to say, you know what? My life here and my mission here is not about feeding my physical stomach, right? It's about serving the Lord. And we don't just live on bread alone. We've got to live off of what God has told us to do. You see that? I'm going to read a few verses leading up to this statement in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And this is why I have the word remember included in the title of this sermon. Remember it is written. Because look what comes before this statement. All the commandments which I commanded thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. That's speaking to Israel. That's essentially a verse that teaches conditional time salvation. Obey God and experience the salvation, deliverance, and blessing of walking in obedience to Him. You see that? And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep His commandments or no. You're going to remember something. Remember how the Lord has been faithful to you all this time. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. <coughs> See, even this thing that Jesus invokes here is invoked in Deuteronomy in a statement about remember what God has done for you. He's remembering that this was written, and in the instance where this thing was written, he's actually saying, remember how God's been faithful to you. And remember that God supplies your needs, and that obeying God is really where you need to be, rather than worried about your temporal affairs. Back in Matthew chapter 4, 
Verse 5, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. So here's the second temptation. Jesus Christ exemplifying how we're going to face temptations as well. There's a temptation that's coming to Him in His weakness and it's attacking Him from the standpoint of this physical weakness with the matter of bread. And in this matter, it's trying to turn the Lord's religion against Him. Oh, I see, you're quoting the Bible to me, Jesus. I can quote the Bible too. So now I'm going to put this, try to put you in a dilemma by using a text inappropriately to try to get you to do what I want you to do. That temptation exists in our world today as well. There are people brokering in the domain of religion who are going to use scriptures to try to teach you to do this, that, and the other thing. And they will twist them to their benefit. The Bible says they will make merchandise of you. They will figure out a way to use these things to put you on a treadmill and extract money from you. And in the promise that we have the keys to the kingdom and, and if you do the thing we tell you to do, you'll achieve eternal salvation. This same sort of thing is being done today in our time. He's quoting Psalm 91 there. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now that is also in Deuteronomy. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. So he's alluding again to events of the Old Testament. And even in the invocation of this in the Old Testament, that mention is talking about things that had previously happened to them where they were tempting the Lord in that time. So there's a remembrance here of God's faithfulness in these circumstances. You see, Jesus is not just quoting these scriptures as if it's kind of a tit-for-tat event where they're kind of debating one another and they're trying to score points. He's pointing out that God is faithful to His people. You need to remember that. He's given us a word, and that word should give us consolation and confidence with respect to the temptations that we face. Because God has been faithful to us in the past. So it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Verse 8, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now that's an interesting statement. One might say, Isn't Jesus the heir of all things? Isn't he already God over all these things, verily God of God? That's true. The devil's referred to as the God of this world. There's a sense in which, in this age, the devil has a certain dominion over the things of this world. Now that's clearly under the sovereign reign of God, but there is a sense in which you could say the devil's the God of this wicked world. You see what I'm saying? And so you might just question the offer. Is the offer even legitimate? But you know what? It doesn't matter. The offer of a lot of things that come into your life as temptations is not legitimate. 
but it's sold to you as if it's legitimate. You'll be told that if you'll go out and drink and party, that it's all just good times and everything's going to be great. And there's not going to be any penalty to pay on the backside of that. You just go join the party. Why are you being such a stick in the mud? Everybody else is doing it. Doesn't seem like there's any consequences coming into their life. Not right now anyway. But is that the truth? Is that the truth that there's no consequences to those things? You see, one of the things that causes people trouble is that they don't understand that consequences are often displaced in time from the event itself. You can be having a fantastic time at 10.30 on a Saturday night, but at 10.30 on Sunday morning, you may have the headache and the hangover that you weren't thinking about 12 hours earlier. You see, the consequences are often brutal and displaced in time from the event that you were tempted to partake in. Young people are tempted into sexual immorality at very early ages, and there's a moment of pleasure in it. There's a moment of attention in it, but the consequences of it often don't show up until months later, weeks later, years later. The temptation that was laid before you was like, it's not going to be, it's going to be fine. I can give you all this. You'll have all the pleasure, all the attention. You'll be partaking of this wonderful world that so many people are delighting in and promoting. And it'll be great. There won't be any consequences for it. And just for the sheer displacement of the displeasure, in time, people are often deceived. You see, they buy into the lie that there's not going to be any consequences to it. But that's not true. So just because Satan is making a bogus offer <laughs> doesn't mean that it's not compelling to you. You see what I'm saying? That's part of what makes it compelling. Now that's tomorrow. I want what I want right now. And who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? It doesn't matter that that offer is bogus. All that matters is that God's people can find it compelling. And when we find it compelling, we need to remember it is written, as the Lord Jesus Christ did. He says, All these things will I give to thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Well, indulge me for a moment. What would have happened, hypothetically, if Jesus had fell down and worshiped the devil? Would the devil have delivered on that promise? Well, no. <laughs> Jesus Christ would have been shown to be evil if he's worshiping the devil. There's literally no way for the devil to deliver on this promise. And the Lord, who was perfect, he knows that. And he responds in verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, in those three temptations, Jesus Christ does not invoke any sort of supernatural capability here. He points to the Scripture. He points to things that were given way back in the Old Testament. He's using some fundamental precepts to avoid falling to the temptations of a liar who's placing those temptations in front of him. This is an incredible endorsement of the Word of God on the part of Jesus Christ. 
It makes me ashamed of how little of the Bible I know, honestly. Brother Sonny mentioned this heritage we have and the great blessing we have in just having a Bible before us. And uh, there's so many of God's people who never had a Bible. There's people today who can't get their hands on a Bible. When you think about those early churches, and you read all these epistles to the early churches, those people weren't walking to church with a big Bible under their arm. They were lucky at that time if they had a few letters, maybe some saints of God in there that could remember some psalms and things like that. They didn't have a complete Bible. So we've been given something that is a tremendous blessing and to my shame, I think I can certainly say I should have studied it more than I have today, and I hope to study it more in the coming year. It's a great blessing to us to have that. So he says, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And that's, once again, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's going all the way back. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Now look. I said, remember, it is written. Look at the context that this verse is written in. If you go back a little bit, back up. He's talking about all the blessings they would have when, when they left the land of Egypt. Verse 12, Then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. See, even in this situation in Deuteronomy, he's talking about remember what God has done. I'm telling you this precept, but do so remembering that God has already proven that He's worthy of this affirmation here. So it's important that we remember that. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Three instances of temptation by the Lord, coming to Him at a moment of weakness, offering Him all sorts of things, and in every instance He refers to the Bible as a means of refuting and overcoming this temptation that is set before him. But then look at verse 11. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. In many instances of temptation in your life, you're going to find that if you can defeat it by remembering it is written, it'll exist for a season, and then you can get beyond it. It will desist. That's not to say it might not ever come back again. It may. It may. But James teaches this over in James chapter 4. He says in chapter 4 and verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. That means you should commit yourself to doing what God would have you to do rather than what you might want to do. Those are by no means the same thing. They are often at conflict with one another. What you want to do is often evil. What you ought to do provided it's in keeping with the Word of God, is not evil. So don't proceed on the assumption, well, I'm a Christian, I joined the church, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, so what I want to do must be the right thing to do. That's a terrible assumption. You should instead commit yourself to whatever God says we ought to do. And he says this, resist the devil. You get the impression you're going to have to do some resisting of the devil, even as Jesus Christ did in Matthew chapter 4. It's going to come into your life, it's certain, it's as certain as death and taxes, if I were to come up and edit uh, Benjamin Franklin's list. I'd say it's more certain than death for some of God's people. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's exactly what we saw exemplified in Christ's example. 
He's in this moment of intense testing in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's having these things placed before him, and in each instance, he resorts to the Word of God. He resists the devil three times, and the devil withdrew. The devil is persistent in his temptations, but he will also withdraw, provided he is resisted enough. And for that cause, we're told, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. So don't just resist the devil and say, okay, I resisted the devil, now I'm not going to draw nigh to God. See, if you resist the devil, and you don't go do the thing he wanted you to do that was evidently evil, now you've freed up the time, well, two or three hours of whatever that evil was you were going to go practice. Now you've got two or three hours freed up on your schedule. I'll just leave it open. If you do that, the devil's likely to find some other two or three hour thing to throw in there and get you to go to that instead. But this says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then it says, draw nigh to God. See, the time you freed up from getting away from doing that evil thing that you shouldn't have done in the first place, use that time to draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. I've heard people say, and I've even said it myself, I just feel like God's not very close to me right now. The first thing you ought to do in that instance is ask yourself, have I drawn nigh to God? Or am I wandering around out in the wilderness, evidently not drawing nigh to God, filling my mind with the things of the world, and it's really no wonder that I don't have much of a spiritual sense in my life right now, because I've filled my mind and my heart with carnal things. I don't have any thought of God at all. How do you draw nigh to God? Well, there's a lot of ways you could do it. Let me ask you this. How do you draw nigh to Hulu? How do you draw nigh to Disney Plus? Netflix? Paramount? There's any number of things out there, and I suspect that some or all of you have done a little drawing nigh under that. Probably have a show out there you've watched every episode. I've watched it three times now. You know how to draw nigh, but are you drawing nigh to God? Is there any time, go back to that pie chart that I asked you to think about earlier. Has Hulu got a bigger slice of pie than drawing nigh to God? How much time you spent studying the Word of God or praying or seeking fellowship in the kingdom of God, serving in His house? How big is that slice of pie versus binge watching something on TV. We know how to draw nigh to things. The problem is we often don't do it. And it's easy to do. I'm not launching out against your shows. Everybody watches shows and stuff like that. Everybody's got a little bit of entertainment they do. But those things can eat up all of your time such that your Bible's sitting over there collecting dust. You hadn't picked it up in weeks. You're not drawing nigh to God. You're not thinking about those things. You're obsessed with the next season of some show that's going to come on. We know how to draw nigh to that. The natural heart of man is inclined to know how to draw nigh unto things that are unprofitable. And we can rack them up. There's a million of them out there. I just ask you that to challenge your thinking. If you're cold and you feel like God has not been close to me, the first thing I would want to ask you in my diagnosis is how are you drawing nigh to God? This verse says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. He will do it. How do you deal with that? 
The first thing I would do is commit myself to drawing nigh to God. And then it says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Don't second-guess this thing, double-minded. Well, I know it says that, but I don't really believe it. Yeah, you're double-minded. You believe the things about God that are declared that you kind of want to believe. Yeah, I believe I'm saved by grace, and I didn't do anything to ever get eternally saved. Amen, brother, I'm an old Baptist. I believe that. Well, we all believe that. It also says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. That's just as plainly declared in the Bible as anything else. That's the conditional time salvation element of what we believe here. You can't just reject that and take salvation by grace from, in an eternal sense. There's also a temporal salvation for God's people if they will draw nigh unto Him. Well, let's close on Deuteronomy chapter 6 because I want you to see a little bit more of the context of where those statements come from. Two of Jesus' responses in Matthew 4 come from Deuteronomy 6. But I want to give you that remember portion that leads up to those statements being made in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll close on this. I'll start in the first verse. Now these are the commandments and statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it. He's reminding them, remember what God has told you. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I commanded thee, thou and thy son and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. That is not do-nothingism. You see what I'm saying? He's not saying, well, it doesn't really matter how you live because we're all saved by grace. So enter into the promised land. That ain't how it works. Now, your eternal salvation is an accomplishment of God. You don't have anything to do with it. But that doesn't alter the fact that there are precepts of how we are to live, and you have deliverances and salvations in your life to the extent that you follow those things. Again, that's conditional time salvation, clearly taught in the Bible. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. You know this is true. If you're one of God's people... You know in your heart of hearts, as we say it commonly, you know this is true. Doesn't mean you always follow it, but you know it to be true. But look at this. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This is not just some personal religion that you're going to keep to yourself and I have my personal studies and I don't really discuss it with anyone. This is something that is supposed to be imparted to the subsequent generations. You're supposed to impart this to your children and teach them the exact same things. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggedest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. You see, they got a whole bunch of blessings from the Lord they didn't have to work for at all, even in temporal matters, right? 
We've had that as well in our lives. Then beware. When everything's great and you've got all the stuff and you've got all the things that people would want to have in this time, everything's going great, you got all the stuff. Here in the land of milk and honey, everything is wonderful. Then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We need to remember what God has done for us. You see that? Important that we remember. Brother Sonny made mention of the fact that we're affluent and blessed. That's the exact same circumstance that's being talked about here. You're affluent and blessed. Remember, this is the very moment. See, our affluence may visit upon us a state of spiritual weakness that is akin to being someone who's fasted for 40 days. You see what I'm saying? You don't even recognize what a weakened spiritual state you're in because you're not thinking about things the right way. But the Bible teaches us as surely as anything that if you draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh unto you. Are you spiritually cold today? Draw nigh to God. You say, God is distant from me. Well, draw nigh to God. Let's check on that matter in 30 days, in 60 days. Sometimes God is distant from us because we have removed ourselves from His presence and we don't seek Him. And we fill up our lives with a lot of trivial, carnal things that ultimately make us unhappy. But if we'll seek the Lord, He will draw nigh unto us. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.